This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. Exploring the music traditions of the highlands of Southern Appalachia. This is the focus of our conversation today. Marcus and I'll be back in a moment. Again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters, and as usual, I'm happy to be here with you all in the audience and always happy to be here with my brother and co-host, Dr. Marcus Harvey. Marcus, how is it going? Pretty good. Excited for today's conversation. I am, too. A lot going on out there. We're going to explore music, and you know, you and I love music, right? We talk about music all the time, but we're going to explore the music traditions of Southern Appalachia. You know, music sometimes tells a story. It really does tell a story. People like W.E.B. Du Bois, some of the scholars that you and I focus on on have talked about this in their work and when you listen to music it can tell you a lot about a people a region their history and their mm-hmm. culture and so one of the albums you know you and i have talked about this before uh, are a group that i really do enjoy and thinking about their music and how it tells the story of the history especially of african americans is the group the sounds of blackness remember they were formed in 1969 became very popular in the late 1980s and very popular through the 1990s but um, one of their fav- one of my favorite albums of theirs was uh, was produced in 1994 and it was entitled Africa to America the journey of the drum telling the story about how the drum got to the Americas so we have actually a cut from that particular album called the drum and want to just play a few seconds of that was the beat and the beat was the rhythm of God and the rhythm of God is the harmony of humanity and where there is harmony there is peace, peace. Wonderful song, mm-hmm. Africa to America, talking about the story of the drum, and you know, you all in the audience, you think you only heard a part of that of that particular cut from that album, but we encourage you to go out and listen to the whole song because it's such a great, great song. Mm-hmm. But Marcus, I can't help but think of you and your work studying Africa. When I listen to that song, did that speak to you? It does. I mean, especially the, the, the title of the song, "We Are the Drum," really brings to mind. Um, one of the things that I learned early in my uh, experiences doing research in Southern Ghana um, on traditional um, rituals there, etc., uh, and that was had to do with the importance of the drum, right? Mm-hmm. So this idea that we see from the sounds of blackness that we are the drum really applies in this in this West African context in the sense that in traditional uh, Akan uh, ritual settings, um, the drum is central mm-hmm. um, in the sense that. Uh, uh, percussionist in ritual settings um, are really are, are in, a, in a full sense musical specialists who are trained to perform certain cadences at certain times mm-hmm. during certain ceremonies to do things like uh, invoke specific spiritual presences um, to do things like, for instance, um, communicate certain musical vocabularies, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and on an even deeper level um, in this context and, and in other West African contexts as well. Um, specialized uh, cadences play a major role in the transmission of knowledge. Right, right. Uh, so, in a very real sense, this idea of of, of persons of African descent literally being the drum um, in an existential way is is very reflective of, right. of, of how the drum functions in these 
continental African right. context. And it's interesting when we think about it, because you and I had a chance to see the movie, uh, the biopic on uh, James Brown. We did. And how James Brown m- m- tried to make every instrument the drum, right? And it's an interesting um, uh, thing that he did with this mm-hmm. and how this has been such an important instrument in in, in the African and African-American experience. Mm-hmm. But um, and I'm sure that it, ex- it has influenced the music here in Southern Appalachia as well. But we want to focus on that and see when I get you rolling on uh, your, your work in Africa, I begin to realize again just why it is that your students love you so much. Because <laughs> it's just a brilliant take, a brilliant take on this. But we want to focus on the musical traditions of this space that we're in right here in Southern Appalachia. And the book that we want to focus on, very popular book, best-selling book, and we're so pleased to be able to kind of focus on this here. And it published in tw- uh, 2014, Wayfaring Strangers, The Musical Voyage from Scotland to Ulster to Appalachia, authored by Fiona Ritchie and Dr. Douglas Orr. And we're happy to have him here in the studio with us today. And we're going to come back and talk to him about this wonderfully put together book in just a few minutes. Again, you're listening to the Waterson Harvey Show, and we're talking about the music traditions of people and how it can tell us a story, tell us a story about their history and their culture. But we're focusing today on the music traditions of, of Southern Appalachia, the space that we're in here. And again, as we said in the last segment, we are so happy and very pleased to have here as our guest, Dr. Douglas Orr, the former president, President Emeritus of Warren Wilson College. Many of you will recognize his voice. You know that name. Just a wonderful member of this community here. Dr. Orr, we're so pleased to have you here in the studio with Welcome us today. Dr. Orr. Thank you, Darren and Marcus. It's uh, an honor to be with you. All right. Thank, thank you, you for taking the time to come in because, you, Doug, you and I have had a number of conversations and we have talked about um, the fact that this book, this wonderfully written book after it was published in in 2014 is taking you to a number of different places you have uh, been traveling quite a bit can you tell us a little bit about the experience of these travels that you've had since the publication of your book there in the book entails several travels and journeys uh it was a um, a 10-year project to begin with uh second of all we traced a journey of the music migration back five or six hundred years And third, uh, we have been traveling with book presentations in Scotland and Northern Ireland, New York, Washington, all over North Carolina, Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, We always include some songs and music along the way. We draw in local musicians. Uh, So it has uh, been a joy. And um, it uh, it was uh, a 10-year project. The last couple of years was the hard writing. But before that... uh, Darren and Marcus, we spent a lot of time interviewing about 45 different individuals, ranging from Pete Seeger to Gene Ritchie to the Scottish singer Gene Redpath to the Carolina Chocolate Drops, because they are the voices of tradition, we Mm -hmm. call them, and they helped carry our story along. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, though, because we think about and talk about this book, um, and it is, is, as I said, beautifully written. I have enjoyed reading um, major portions of it. You've you've pointed me to certain sections of it, sections of the book that you wanted me to read 
can you tell us first, um, as we kind of get started in this conversation, can you tell us what was it that prompted this project? You said a 10-year project. Now, you and you yourself are a mu- musician, yeah. so I understand the interest there. But what prompted this particular project? Well, probably several things, uh, Darren. Uh, Fiona Ritchie and I have been friends for 35 years. And her program, The Thistle and Shamrock, with NPR, started in Charlotte at WFA. And I was there as a, as a vice chancellor, and the radio station was one of my departments. My ancestry is Scottish, Scotch-Irish. I was a 60s folky. Uh, I was involved in the civil rights movement one way or another, and all those wonderful anthems and songs of the movement. Uh, Fiona writes as well as she speaks. And in a way, our friendship over the years simply bubbled up to the point that one day we said, we need to chronicle Mm -hmm. this story, that uh, we want to be the chroniclers um, of other voices so that the story and the tradition is carried on for future generations. Mm -hmm. It doesn't end on the last page of our book. Mm -hmm. And we tell our audiences that. For example, I saw a little sign at a bookstore at a festival in Virginia that said, a good book has no ending. Think about that one and how you carry on a story, be it fiction or nonfiction, in your own mind. And for this story in particular, it's so important that we here in the Asheville area especially carry on this great tradition. And um, it's a it's a tradition that's multifaceted. When we started out the project, we had a contract with the UNC Press for a 230-page book. It wound, It came in at 385. They were very tolerant. <laughs> but the reason for that is uh, we found out, we were not surprised, but it deepened our understanding that this music of the Southern Appalachians is not one-dimensional in one culture. It's a tapestry. Right, right. And and building on that point, Dr. Orr, you talked about, you just made the point that um, that this, this musical tradition is not monolithic. Um, it, is, it is culturally complex. Uh, with that in mind, could you speak a little bit more about the process of actually constructing this project? I mean, you mentioned uh, conducting interviews a bit earlier. Uh, what else went into this project? Uh, in a way, uh, Marcus, it's multifaceted, so it was a complicated book in that sense, mm-hmm. in that um, we not only had the interviews, um, mm-hmm. but we have a CD in the back of the book. We refer to tracks on the CD as we uh, go through the text in the book. Mm-hmm. There are numerous sidebars along the way uh, to give the reader a, a fuller um, knowledge of, say, the history of the banjo or mm-hmm. uh, dance or whatever it, uh, it, it might be. And uh, as one reviewer said about the book, it captures images of three impossibly beautiful areas, Ireland, Scotland, and the Southern Appalachians. Mm-hmm. My wife, Darcy, was the art editor, and she collected 135 Im- images that run through the book. So you weave all that together. In fact, our editor called the book a process of braiding and weaving, mm-hmm. all the component parts. Um, in a way, it's a complicated book, but it's a very rich story, and consequently, we thought a very rich book to right. write. Mm-hmm. Well, Doug, you know, you brought up um, the, the rich tapestry. That mm-hmm. is a tapestry, and, and that made me think about, you know, what I've heard some historians say, that the way that we look at American history, that we can sometimes agree on what the picture looks like, but we disagree on what should be most emphasized in the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering, as you were going through this process, were there any surprises in that tapestry that you discovered that may not have been as highlighted uh, as other other components of, of that tapestry had been? Darren, I think uh, a major su- – I wouldn't necessarily call it a, a surprise as much as a, uh, a much deeper and more complex story. 
and that would be the nature of the tapestry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, the Scotch-Irish and Scottish music was kind of the original soundtrack as they immigrated a quarter of a million in the 18th century, but you had influences from the French, the Welsh, the German, uh, the Irish, the English, the Cherokee with their percussive sounds mm-hmm. and their dances, and most notably, and often underestimated, the African-American mm-hmm. influence, because we think of the African-American influence in uh, Southern Appalachian music uh, as being the banjo, mm-hmm. which came from West Africa, and as Marcus mentioned, uh, the percussive drumming sound, uh, that uh, there are echoes of West Africa and Ghana, certainly Marcus, in Appalachian music. But it's far beyond that. I did not realize that at the time of the Revolutionary War, half of the fiddle players in the South were African American. Mm-hmm. And what was going on there is they were learning uh, to play the fiddle from their slave masters. They would add their syncopated blues and slide notes and then loop it back to their Mm -hmm. so-called teachers, and it entered the vernacular of Appalachian fiddle music. And then, of course, there were the call-and-response songs from the fields. There were the hush lullabies by the mammies. There were the spirituals. And also, there were African-American string bands that played for black and white dances all over the Carolinas, for example. And uh, we think of uh, square dance calling as being out of the uh, 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 white community. No, it was invented in the black community. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say most of all, the depth of influence by all of these yeah. others, especially the African-American, the depth of it was a surprise. Yeah. Right. And, and and sort of uh, playing off that 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 commentary, Dr. Orr, you mentioned that um, that in in many studies, I guess prior to the publication of your book in, in 2014, the African American component was underestimated. You said, why is that? You think? Um, uh, it's complicated, but I think mm-hmm. one of the reasons is the history was written through the white community, mm-hmm. uh, and then so much of the migration of the music and the story of the music is an oral history carried mm-hmm. on among families. And consequently, we had to dig into some of that oral history as well. Um, The banjo fell out of favor in the black community in the 1800s because of blackface minstrelsy, which was Mm -hmm. basically a caricature. It's very popular in New York and and London and places. Mm -hmm. So the black community turned away from their instrument, the banjo, picked up the guitar, the blues, and the others. Until the last few decades, and the banjo has made a comeback thanks to folks like the uh, uh, Carolina Chocolate Drops, the Black Banjo Reunion, and uh, suddenly uh, the black community is reclaiming their instrument. Okay. So, Doug, you you just touched on um, what I was going to bring up in just a few minutes to go back to the banjo. Mm -hmm. Um, And it sounds like from what you're saying that there's kind of being a rediscovery of this this instrument within the African-American community itself. Right. Exactly. And let's just take, for example, the Carolina Chocolate Drops, which are North Carolina based. Mm And Raymond Giddens has uh, taken banjo in the Swannanoa Gathering that I started at Warren Wilson many years ago, multi-talented uh, individual. But uh, the Carolina Chocolate Drops brought back the jug band sound, which is Southern Appalachian, but Marcus said also is very much West African. So the jug was their percussion, their, it was their drum. And they were using jugs to play. And, of course, they also were playing the fiddle and the banjo and sometimes the guitar as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dr. Orso, what, 
this is such such an important um, uh, point to realize in terms of the musical influences of this region. What is being done specifically to enhance our understanding of this particular African American com- component of the um, tradition of, of 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 musical expression in Southern Appalachia? Mm-hmm. I mean, are there are there sort of specific programs in place, initiatives, um, efforts underway to to educate people? Um, about this this musical history well there there are many mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. starting with public radio okay. <laughs> uh, uh, books uh, music camps for example at the mm-hmm. Swannanoa gathering at Warren Wilson we're in the we're in Celtic week but last week was traditional song week and we had three uh, three teachers out of the african-american community teaching black gospel teaching blues uh, mm-hmm. uh, teaching spirituals uh, so, uh, music camps, uh, and of course, uh, concerts, presentations. Uh, we probably have three concerts a day in Asheville of one kind or another, yeah. uh, including uh, uh, delving into the uh, African American community. But um, as I say, part of our goal uh, in this book that we hope others will carry on uh, with the story is to uh, understand the origins of the music and how um, diverse and how much of a tapestry it is, it makes it a richer tradition mm-hmm. and music yeah. and a richer story and because it's not just one influence. So I think on many fronts, we have a responsibility to help folks understand that richness and diversity. And uh, quite frankly, I think over the years, the African-American influence has been underestimated. Mm-hmm. But that is certainly being overcome very quickly, thanks to Caroline Chocolate Drops and others. Right. And, Doug, I, and I, I think here about, um, in thinking about the music of Southern Appalachia, it, and you may not know the answer to this question, but it just popped up in my head as we, as we were talking here. But think about the distinct sound of Southern Appalachia, the influence of African Americans on that. Can you hear that sound? I'm sure we could talk about artists who are from here, and I would like yeah. to talk about that in a few minutes, but can you hear this the sound of are uh, the contribution of the sound of Southern Appalachia in some of the more popular um, um, forms of music that we know. Like um, if we if we we're taking African American music here and we're thinking about hip hop music, yeah. music, in thinking about you know your relationship with the members of the Carolina Chocolate Drops, do they talk about how? Um, the Southern Appalachian tradition, especially among African Americans, may have influenced the larger picture of African Americans. Oh yes, one uh, they and the interview with the Carolina Chocolate Drops impressed me on many levels, not the least of which is the fact they are very much scholars of the history of the music. Mm-hmm. Now there are a couple of metaphor names for the nature of this interweaving. One is that it's a family tree of music. Mm-hmm. Another that it's a carrying stream that comes from. A Scottish folklorist. So there are many tributaries, there are many branches uh, along the way, and consequently it all is interconnected. Roberta Flack from Black Mountain, mm-hmm, for example, mm-hmm. reflects some of that tradition. Aretha Franklin uh, and, and others. Uh, several of the leading lights of Appalachian uh, music, uh, Bill Monroe, uh, Jimmy Rogers, Doc Watson, mm-hmm. uh, 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 and others, all had black mentors and friends. When A.P. Carter went out in the field to collect, uh, he was with Leslie Riddle, who was a, uh, uh, a great collector as well. So that is something we discovered and didn't know mm-hmm. about, and we have a graphic in our book to depict that. But indeed, um, hip-hop, uh, uh, even going to New Orleans for, uh, for jazz and blues, 
it's part of the family tree. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, Doug, you brought up Doc Watson, and I'm glad you did. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about that because you and I have talked about right. um, about Doc Watson. and But you have an interesting story about his relationship with an African-American um, it, artist. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, just quickly. It's a heartwarming story, Darren. But Doc was young, of course, blind, uh, took the bus from Kingsport uh, up to Philadelphia and uh, was playing in restaurants wherever he could to try to scrape by a living because Doc had said in his interview with me, I was just trying to support a family. Mm -hmm. He was disheartened. He wasn't making that much money. He was having to pay for room and board, and he just about turned and came home, and we would have never heard from him again. Mm -hmm. But there was a chef at the restaurant where he was working by the name of Jerry Ricks. He was a blues guitar player. And he said to young Doc one day, young fella, you seem to be a bit disheartened. Uh, tell me about it and explain the financial challenges. And he said, well, uh, young doc, I have a, um, uh, an apartment with a clean bed, and I'm a chef, and I'll cook the meals. Uh, let me take you in to help you with this. And doc's response was, well, I'll do it under, under one circumstance that we split the cost of the groceries. Doc said, we ate like kings. <laughs> doc stayed on. Jerry mentored him, and he became what I like to say the two best-known North Carolinians globally are Doc Watson and Michael Jordan. (laughs) (laughs) Very rich story. What an inspiring story. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so Dr. Orr, one of the, as as you know, one of the, um, I'd say, newly coined terms uh, that has emerged, I would say, since the 1990s that relates um, to these these African-American traditions in Southern Africa. Uh, Southern Appalachia is this term Afrolatia, right? Coined by the Kentuckian poet Frank X. Walker. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on this term? Uh, I know that it's a complicated term. Um, I've seen definitions of the term that include um, other ethnic experiences beyond the African-American experience here. Uh, but thoughts on this term. Right. And Doug, if sure. I can, mm-hmm. as you as you think sure. about that, too, as mm-hmm. Marcus brings that up, I'm glad you did. It, to think about, and I know you have a relationship with Bill Turner, who yeah. is mm-hmm. one. And, you know, and I consider for our uh, our audience, Bill Turner, I think, is one of the leading scholars on um, African-American life in Southern Appalachia. Published with uh, Edward Cable published a book in 1985, Blacks, Blacks in, Appalachia. in Appalachia. And I know that you and Bill know each other very well. Yeah. And I wonder, too, as you think about in, in respond to Marcus's question, have you had conversations with Bill about this particular term, Afrolatcha, as well? Not conversations. I have book, uh, Walker and Turner's books. I collected about 150 books in the process of researching. <laughs> and, um, um, and they're very thoughtful, and I think they're both very helpful. Uh, helpful in the sense that it underscores the fact that the African-American tradition in music is part of Appalachia. Uh, so uh, Ap- uh, Afro-Latin helps with that. I think on the other side of the coin, um, it shouldn't mean, however, that the African influence is separate from mm-hmm. the white because they're interfused. Right. As I said, with the fiddle sounds, that very much is a combination of white and black influences. Mm-hmm. The banjo, another case in point, and on it goes. So on the one hand, I think it's a useful term. I've uh, been to a number of... Uh, readings and, and so forth by Afro-Latin storytellers. Right, right, yeah. And uh, so I, I welcome it, but we need to underscore the fact it doesn't mean it's a separate tract mm-hmm. because they are 
interwoven in the very best sense. Right, right. And I and I get the sense from some of the things that I've read that, that uh, Bill Turner has had to say that he's in agreement with that yeah. as well. He, he tells a funny story, uh, Doug, in um, a small article that he wrote on the whole term and brand of Afrolatcha because uh, Frank X. Walker was his student. And, you know, and he, he applauds uh, his kind of genius in creating this term. But I, this story just always um, brings a sense of humor to my mind when I think about it, where he said he did an interview with a woman um, and asked her if she thought of or if she saw herself as a, an Appalachian. Because I can't personally, I can't remember hearing this term when I grew up. And her response to Bill's question was that, Bill, you know that I'm a Baptist. (laughs) (laughs) So it's really interesting to think about to think about this term. just one other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, too, uh, since we had you here, is Marcus and I, you know, we like to focus on um, issues concerning marginalized communities, historically marginalized communities, and we know that the African-American experience has been one that has been a marginalized experience, uh, as have Native Americans, and you have so beautifully weaved all of that into this conversation to show how those cultures have influenced the larger culture of Southern, of Southern Appalachia. And I don't know if people generally think about this. You brought up Roberta Flack, but I I think about other artists as well. You brought up Roberta Flack and the Carolina Chocolate Drops, but I think about Nina Simone um, and also Bill Withers. And did you did you get a chance to have any conversations with Bill Withers um, as you were doing this research? And I'm and I'm curious about do you hear that distinct sound of Southern Appalachia in the music of people like Nina Simone and uh, Bill Withers? I do. And while I didn't have a chance to talk with Withers, um, there's a, a quote that I just love. It comes from Ron Penn, who's a professor of music at the uh, at University of Kentucky. And he said, this music, this Appalachian music, is the music that America comes home to. And I think what he means by that is that it is so interwoven with all of these other influences. And indeed, when I hear Nina sing or Roberta mm-hmm. or Withers, I hear echoes going back uh, uh, whispers of the Middle Ages is a term we sometimes so so it follows a migration track back uh, across the sea to West Africa to the British Isles even to southern France in the age of the troubadours uh, the first lyric poets and singers uh, so there is this long migration train and up to today's hip hop or whatever it might be jazz blues rock and roll it's part of the same carrying strain and family tree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is and wonderful. I, what you put yeah, that? And just to say, it, 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 what, what what strikes me about this story and about the way that Dr. Orr is, is laying this out is that um, what's unavoidable is that um, there is this this relationship, this, this this cultural relationship, this this interwoven cultural tapestry that we're confronted with. Mm-hmm. Um, that really, I think, helps to give context to to so many different experiences right. in this region. And I tell you, Dr. Orr, again, I want to thank you for Thanks taking so the much. time to come in here and talk about this. And what I'm, it, it's a, such an encouraging conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm hoping is that, especially for younger Afri- African-Americans in the region and others, not just African-Americans, but you know, being that it's the tradition that we come from, that they will be inspired by this conversation and the work that you all have done as well, and that they will 
will make an effort to do what people like the, you know, the members of the Carolina Chocolate Drops have done to try to understand the uniqueness of their experience in this space and to find ways to express that in artistic form. So we want to thank you again for taking the time to come in here and have this conversation. Thank you for this wonderful book that you've written. And Marcus and I will be back in just a minute. Again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. Marcus, this was a wonderful conversation with Dr. Orr. Um, just beautifully uh, expressed uh, the work that he and Fiona and Richard did in this wonderful book. Thoughts, your thoughts on this? Brother? Yeah, it, it kind of goes back to what I said uh, before Before this this most recent break. Uh, I, what what really strikes me is this sort of theme of, of interwoven humanity, mm-hmm. of, the, of, of this idea that, that, that Southern Appalachia is the space where um, African humanities, uh, humanities of European descent, now because of you know historical events, exist, uh, like it or not, mm-hmm. uh, exist in a sort of condition of interrelatedness um, right. that I think is instructive for us. What I get and out challenging of it, at the same time. That's true. Yeah. What I get out of it, it is a shared experience. Mm-hmm. So we thank you all for joining us for this conversation. And as we leave, Marcus and I want to remind you all again that the Waters and Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, on the BPR mobile app, and on iTunes and Google Play. And again, remember, you can follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter. And again, we thank Dr. Orr for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.